Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. What a weekend. Perhaps you had the time to celebrate the good news with Roe versus Wade being overturned. Maybe you followed the protests or maybe you focused on the good news of the various states that have nearly completely outlawed abortion with some states including exceptions some states immediately announcing from abortion clinic to abortion clinic that their doors are closed we'll do a victory lap later on during our weekly happy hour today on trending we're talking about some pretty uh, controversial topics today during our weekly happy hour a little heavier than usual joining me in just a moment will be Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. Recently, you perhaps saw the documentary or have picked up a copy of the book, What is a Woman Confronting the Crisis of Gender Ideology in Our Culture and the Fact that Many People Can't Say What a Woman Is or Who a Man Is. We're going to talk about everything from the good news and the pro-life movement this week to the battle ahead of us. But first, can I just celebrate? Maybe you can celebrate with me as well. I think this is really happy news. Feminists are announcing their sex strikes across the nation. Women were actually asked to take a pledge. We cannot take the risk, apparently, of unintended pregnancies. Therefore, we will not have sex with any man, including our husbands, unless we are trying to become pregnant. It's fascinating to me when they announce their sex strikes uh, when it comes to reduced access with regard to abortion, because they're actually proving the point that women are the gatekeepers when it comes to sex and babies. In fact, there's a whole book about this by Mark Regnerus called Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy. And it talks about how because we have changed our perspective on sexuality as women, It's changed how men view us, how we view ourselves, and what does and doesn't go. And ultimately, the yes power is really in the hands of women. And so it'll be interesting to see how this sex strike goes for many women. A little bit of self-control and virtue might be a good thing for us. Joining me now from The Daily Wire is Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is a Catholic. You know him from The Matt Walsh Show. He recently traveled not just the nation but the world to ask the question, what is a woman? You can hear the documentary at the Daily Wire as well as read the book. And in that documentary, one of the things that fascinated me is a interview that was done with abortionist and pediatrician who gives minors puberty blockers and hormones. That was with Dr. Michelle Forcier. Matt, welcome to Trending. I'm fascinated to hear more about your conversations behind the scenes during your documentary, What is a Woman? Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So one of the primary conversations was with Dr. Michelle Forsey, as I mentioned, abortionist and pediatrician. And it was fascinating to see that one, she was willing to sit down and talk to you, but how she kind of followed this conversation. What was it like for you, especially kind of having this opinion on the gender issue, but with just asking questions in that setting and hearing some of the things that she was saying? Yeah, it was uh, it was difficult oftentimes, not just in that interview, but especially in that one, to sit and uh, listen to, to, to all of that. But we kind of decided going into it, um, and fortunately I had you know a good team working on this film behind the scenes that could pull me back to the brink a few times when I wanted to really sort of go after them more directly. But we decided going into it that the most effective approach, the most revealing thing that we could do would be to just let them talk, uh, ask basic questions, and... Um, and sort of give gender ideology the rope to hang itself with, and that's what we uh, that's what we decided to do. And what we found is that, 
you know, you really don't have to ask difficult questions um, to the proponents of this ideology in order to make the, the House of Cards collapse. It's uh, it really any amount of scrutiny whatsoever is enough to bring the whole thing tumbling down. There were three key statements that, that got my attention when she was speaking. One was when she tried to argue that babies and infants understand gender. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what she said here? Yeah, I you know what I was trying to ascertain is if children can choose their own gender, which of course they can't, that's nonsense, but she claims that they can. So uh, when do they develop this ability? And um, does she, you know, does she draw the line anywhere? Um, Because if you're going to say that kids at all have that, are able to do this, then where do you draw the line? Anywhere you draw the line is going to seem rather arbitrary. And that's a problem with the left in general, with everything, including abortion, just drawing arbitrary lines all the time. Um, but she was uh, not drawing any lines at all. She said that all, pretty much from birth, the children are able to uh, determine, you know, make determinations about their gender. And, and then from there, we, you know, I, we, we, I tried to get her to engage a little bit on, well, what if that's the case, then uh, and, and we can take a child seriously when they make these kinds of declarations about themselves. A little boy says, I'm a girl. Um, well, how can that be the case, given the fact that kids are very imaginative? You know, they don't exactly have the firmest sense of of reality versus mm-hmm. fiction. They're not able to discern, you know, reality versus fiction. And um, once I started asking about that, it really, uh, once again, the emptiness of this worldview became pretty clear. And that actually brings me to the conversation about Santa Claus. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what she had to say about Santa Claus? And I think she may think that he's real. It, you know, and kind yeah. of unpacking, of course, you know, as we talk about that child-friendly conversation of her perspective on Santa Claus and affirming whatever a child believes is always 100% true. Yeah, I, I uh, when we first started doing the, the film and talking to people, I, I didn't really expect that I would be surprised that much by anything anybody said to me, just because I'm pretty aware when it comes to this issue, pretty invested in it, and uh, I thought that I already knew most of what there was to know. But uh, I, I found that, in fact, I was surprised quite often, and that was one of the moments in that interview in particular, there were a few surprising moments, but that was one of them, when I, she would not affirm to me that Santa Claus doesn't exist and and uh the reason i even brought that up was just because again i'm trying to establish that kids live in an imaginative kind of fantasy world and that's very natural for kids and uh they believe you know anything they believe that fairies are real and you know batman is flying around out there and they believe all this stuff so um if they don't have a firm sense of reality how can you take their declarations of their gender as a reality when they don't really understand what reality is and that's what I was trying to get to, but but I couldn't get all the way there because she was not willing to affirm reality herself. Um, and mm-hmm. so w- w- where she stands on the existence of Santa Claus, I, I still don't even know exactly. I, I think that probably the answer is that, as we talked about, as we got into later in the interview, you know, she thinks that everybody has their own reality, their own truth. And so I guess Santa Claus is true, depending on if you believe that he is. Um, and that's, uh, I, we, we ran into that in almost every interview with people on this side of the, of the issue that eventually it devolves into, well, whose truth are we talking about? Whose reality are we talking about? And it just turns into this uh, relativistic sort of uh, self-perpetuating nonsense. And for her, her reality is that it's perfectly okay to give puberty blockers to children. And Lupron, which, as you discussed with her, is a drug given to sex offenders to chemically castrate them. She's okay with all of this, and she makes it seem as if there's no negative impact on children and that if they take a puberty blocker, for example, their bodies will continue to pick back up right where they left off if and and in the event that they choose to stop taking those. Now, can you speak a little bit to that part of the conversation that was fascinating to me that she knows otherwise, but she's told herself a lie and other people a lie uh, for the sake of this agenda? Yeah, the line she used, I think, was that puberty is like a song, and uh, you can use a puberty blocker to just pause the song, pause, pause the music, and then pick it up right where you left. 
And I've heard that exact analogy from many of these people. This is just a standard talking point they use. Um, it's not true at all. It doesn't make any sense. And, and, and the thing is, you don't even need to know anything about the medical side of this to, to know that that's just nonsensical. Like the idea that you can just put a pause on um, the healthy development of the body, just sort of hold it. You can sort of hold the body in, in this stasis, this limbo, and then whenever you feel like it, pick it up again. That's just, that's just not how bodies work. That's not how, that's not how life works. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so I, I think you're, if you have um, a, you know, a, a sense of when someone's telling you something that's not true, then already red flags are going off. But then when you actually go and talk to people, as I did in the film, people on the other side of this, people who do know about the medical side of it, uh, they will confirm that that's just totally nonsense. These puberty blockers, in fact, uh, change the body in ways that are significant and severe and also permanent. I mean, there are permanent changes to the body that are happening and almost too numerous to count. I mean, you're, you're changing the body in many, di many different ways. Um, one of them is, you know, something as simple, but also simple, but, but, but also serious, the, the sound of someone's voice. You know, you give these kids the, the drugs and it changes how, the way their voice sounds, and that's a permanent effect. Um, much more serious is that is you're, we're sterilizing kids. I mean, this has the effect of causing infertility and sterility, and that's a permanent effect. And so we have kids who are just kids and yet they're, quote, unquote, making the choice to um, give up on having their own kids down the line. How, how could they possibly make that choice in an informed way? They have no idea what they're giving up or what, what it means. And so it's just total uh, nonsense. And these drugs are in some forms new and experimental, the way they're being given, the time of life they're being given uh, to teenagers. And as we know with, for example, a sex change, even though you can't change your sex, you can manipulate the material of the body that it's really in the studies show it's seven to 10 years after the fact that regret and remorse uh, settles in for many people who have been through that. But our studies and follow up both on uh, bodily mutilation through so-called sex change as well as through chemical castration and the chemical manipulation of the body uh, is not really something that's been done. I mean, a lot of the studies are few and far between looking at the long-term impact, much of which we just don't know today. And so it's amazing to me that she proclaims herself as this pediatrician uh, who's proud to be a so-called gender-affirming pediatrician. And it also, I don't know how you did it, Matt, knowing that she was abortionist, knowing that she was giving these drugs to these people. How, I think this is a lesson for all of us to learn. I'm curious to hear how you were able to comport yourself in such a conversation, knowing her full background and what she was advocating for. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, I, I guess by the grace of God is the answer I would give because it's not something, you know, um, being able to hold back my temper is not always, especially dealing with stuff like this, is, that's not always my strong suit. But at the same time, I, I think I had a pretty firm sense of what we were trying to do and what we were trying to achieve. And so I just kind of kept my, you know, sort of keeping your eyes on the prize, uh, as it were. And that was the case here. It's just sort of like I, everything she's saying to me, I wanted to argue with it. I wanted to tell her off. I mean, as soon as she told me that she was an abortionist, and that's something that I, I don't even think I knew that before I sat down to uh, mm. talk to her. And right then and there, I wanted to you know, engage with that part of it. But if I had done that, then the whole conversation's over and nothing else, you know, every other part of that interview doesn't happen. And so it was just a matter of remembering like what we're trying to achieve, what the end goal is here and um, just let them keep talking. Yeah, and it is interesting because if you look up Dr. Michelle Forcier's bio, she never says that she's an abortionist. It's always, quote unquote, contraceptive services and advanced contraceptive care, which is what the pro-abortion movement actually likes to refer to as abortion sometimes because they know they don't want to refer to what they do as abortion. They didn't for years, and now they're a little more apt to. I think that the mindset has shifted in the pro-abortion movement of abortion being a necessary evil that they think is, you know, necessary and important for their lifestyle, but for years they avoided using the word abortion. So I found it fascinating in looking her up that she never really explicitly says that other than I heard it in the interview itself when she was talking to you. Another person, Matt, and if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Timra here on Relevant Radio. That's Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. We're talking about his recent book and documentary, What is a Woman? 
traversing the world, diving into this gender ideology and craze, one of the people that you interviewed, Matt, was Gert Comfrey. She's a marriage and family therapist and seems as if she does nothing but affirm whatever reality you want to identify as. Can you share with us a little bit about your conversation with Gert Comfrey? Yeah, she was the first person we talked to, both uh, in the film and also just while filming. So that was, uh, you know, the, the, the chronology of it. And uh, she was uh, very nice, uh, unlike many of the other gender ideologues we talked to. Uh, most of them, frankly, were just really unpleasant from the get-go. But she, uh, she was not. She was, she was very nice and friendly. And um, she was maybe the one person of the so-called, like, quote-unquote experts that I talked to on that side. She was maybe the one person who I who I who I might concede is a perhaps well intentioned but just extremely deluded and confused about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for most of the people that I talk to, I, I you know this is just we can't see inside someone's heart, so this is just total speculation and guessing. But most of the people I talk to, I think that they're not well intentioned at all, and that at some level they know what they're saying is, is nonsense, but they're driven by profit. With her, I wasn't quite so sure. It seemed like she really was, she really believed some of this stuff, um, which doesn't make it okay, obviously. And in some ways, it makes it even more dangerous. So, yeah, she was she was um, very friendly, but she and very affirmative. And that was the problem: is that she would just sit there and affirm literally anything that I said. And at, 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 you know, by the end of the interview with her, I I got her to affirm that I myself might be a woman because I like scented candles and I've seen sex in the city, <laughs> you know, and, um, I simply said that to her and she said that, yeah, we, you know, that's something you need to explore. It's, it's a journey you need to go on. And that might actually, she was willing to affirm me potentially as a woman for that reason alone. And it is, so it's like, it's funny because it's so absurd. Um, mm-hmm. and the whole conversation with her was just wild and absurd and so mm-hmm. that's the funny part of it. And I had to stop myself from laughing. But then, then you stop and think about it and you, and you think, well, well, wait a second. I mean, yeah, I, it's one thing for her to affirm me that way because I know better, right? But um, there are a lot of actually confused people who are going in to talk to her. And uh, she uh, obviously does the same thing with them, just affirms everything they say. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's not, that's not what therapy is. And we talked to Jordan Peterson later on in the, for the other side of this and, um, and he said that this is not therapy is not just about affirming whatever whatever conclusions you've come in there with. Like that's the opposite of therapy, actually. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you bring up that Gert Comfrey was the one person that you interviewed who really, you know, you almost seem to think that she really did mean well uh, by what she was doing. It, it was, you know, good intention, good hearted, completely on her part. Cause I saw that in some of her conversation as well. You know, I saw the desire to just have people be happy. I saw a loving side of her, even in your interview, uh, the desire, you know, to be friends, to make peace. And I think there's, there are a lot of people today who, you know, they want harmony, they want peace, they want happiness, they want love, you know, that that kind of free love, a hippie movement that's there in a certain respect, even in the youngest generation today, that is truly well intended, but people just don't realize it's a form of approval, sometimes outright apathy and weakness. And I think that we can all in a certain respect, Matt, see ourselves where we could all give into that type of mentality, maybe not on the gender issue, but on various issues in our society. And I think that that's what stood out to me about Gert. She really did seem to intend well by what she said and what she did, and she believed in it uh, with passion. And you could even argue a strong sense of happiness in her demeanor that you couldn't necessarily say with all the other people who were on the opposing side of this topic that you interviewed. So I think that that really stood out to me in the conversation. If you've not uh, gotten to learn a little bit about What is a Woman, the documentary and book, it's available now for purchase the book and you also can also catch the documentary at daily wire i'm going to come back in just a moment here on trending during our weekly happy hour to talk about another controversial topic from abortion to gender to respect within marriage matt wrote a couple of blogs a couple years ago that really stood out to me have to do with male female dynamics in a culture where we sort of blurred the lines and it just might help save marriages today we'll be right back with matt walsh here on trending with tim ray Today's show is sponsored by Colby Academy. With more than 40 years of experience in Catholic home education, 
Colby Academy offers a blend of classical Catholic curriculum and the latest education technology. More info at relevantradio.com slash Colby. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. I know there's a lot of debate circling around abortion protests, some people upholding pro-life laws, others blocking and refusing to enforce them. But let's keep up the pro-life victory lap. Let's talk about the good news and how we can get more involved in the pro-life movement. I have great news for you in just a moment here on Trending. But joining me now is Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire. He recently released the documentary and book, What is a Woman, that we were just talking about. But I want to talk about another controversial male-female topic while we're at it. Matt, some years ago, you wrote two blogs that really stood out to me, one talking about how a husband shouldn't have to earn his wife's respect, and the other was titled The Most Effective Way to Destroy Your Husband, Ruin Your Marriage, and Encourage Infidelity. Both of these blogs focused on the fundamental idea, the primordial idea within marriage of respect. And I want to start a little bit with your story because it did fascinate me when you talked about how part of respect is respecting, you know, a husband as a leader within the home. And you talked about how when you got married, you didn't know what you were doing necessarily to lead the home and how your wife provided that space and respect to help you figure that out, but to encourage you and embolden you in that new role within your family. Can you talk a little bit about how this inspired you and what inspired you to write about this and talk about it? Yeah, I think uh, there's some definite some uh, some deep cuts there from the from the old blog days, uh, but that's something that look I've um, it's it's I've always written about and talked about, and it goes to marriage and family, and uh, something that I that I notice is a mistake that we can all we can all tend to make, and that I think is unfortunately encouraged in society is to like go into a marriage and it's this very mercenary sort of approach to marriage, where you're thinking about what what can I get out of it. Uh, what am I owed? And so then the, the attitude is that, well, the wife goes into the marriage. She doesn't owe, you don't owe your husband anything. You certainly don't owe him respect. He has to, he has to earn that from you. And then the husband, of course, is told the same thing and believes the same thing. But, you know, my, my wife has to earn my respect and my love. And uh, the problem with that, there are many problems with it. One of them is that when you stand at the altar as most people still do when they get married anyway you are pledging certain things you're vowing certain things you're vowing your love and your respect and your fidelity and your loyalty and all of that your devotion you're pledging that so so in fact you already owe that to your spouse just by the nature of the fact that you made that vow and that vow means something um and uh and it means something every day of your marriage never wears off and then the other problem also is that, you know, if you go into it with that approach, I think it, it creates animosity and it, it's, it's very belittling. Um, and so that can be especially the case for a man. I think the, the worst thing that a man can feel in a marriage is that he's not respected, that he doesn't have respect. And uh, I know maybe there are some women who believe and they've been, again, encouraged to believe this from society that, well, if you withhold respect from the man, then that will, uh, you know, then you're like training him, like he's some sort of dog to, uh, to earn the respect because you've withheld it. But it doesn't actually work that way. When you, when you tear someone down and you belittle them, well, that just makes them, you know, feel, um, feel sort of attacked, feel, feel lesser, feel like a lesser man. And then the, the, the more they feel that way, the more resentment they feel, and then they're behaving in ways that are even less respectable. And it just becomes this vicious cycle. Um, and uh, it, it never leads anywhere good, which is why mm-hmm. you go into it giving to your spouse what you owe them rather than thinking about, you know, what they owe you. 
And I think disrespect is so second nature within male-female dynamics today. I think it's rarely modeled. And this is why, you know, all these years, these two blocks have always stood out to me, Matt. I've referred to them many times, linked to them, because I know they had a huge influence on me before I ever got married, because I saw how that dynamic was so easy within a dating relationship and even worse within the context of marriage. And yes, you should be earning things within the context of dating. In a certain respect, that's a whole nother conversation. You know, you are learning trust and respect and honor and all of these different things. Uh, But you point to something that's so important, and that is we would be outraged if as a culture we said that a wife should have to earn her husband's love, uh, but we're so offended as a culture um, to say, or we're not offended as a culture to say a man should have to um, prove his and earn his respect from his wife. It's such a I think double-edged sword in our culture and it's a hypocritical yet that's what's modeled in tv and i would argue in the majority of relationships today yeah i think so and this goes back uh you know there's the old sitcom dad trope it goes back to the 90s of the of the dumb overweight oaf of the husband with the kind of sassy beautiful wife who has no respect for him and you know all the all the humor comes from what an idiot he is and all that. And she's constantly cutting him down and you find that in commercials and everything. And uh, I think that that maybe sitcoms themselves with the laugh tracks and everything aren't as popular as they used to be, but that trope, that kind of idea hasn't really gone away. It just manifests itself in different ways. Um, but it also kind of, the other thing is that, is that many people in uh, my generation, anyway, we grew up watching this kind of thing in media and then you end up uh, mm-hmm. emulating it. And also, mm-hmm. also it just it, it, it gives you the idea that it's okay to treat people that way. The other thing that I would mention, too, is that after, you know, after having been married now for uh, almost 11 years and I have four kids and um, learning, learning more also from marriage, and one, one thing that I've – I don't know if I'd say I've learned this necessarily because it, it seemed obvious going in, but I've, I've had it um, – you know, I've lived it now, and, and, and one of the most important things in a marriage is uh, appreciation. Like, I think that when marriages fall apart and you listen to uh, divorced, you know, d- divorced couples and, and going through a divorce, uh, that's, you're always going to hear this story of how they don't feel appreciated. Neither of them felt appreciated by the other. It's just the same story over and over and over again. And uh, that, that plays into the respect thing as well. Um, I think men and women look for appreciation in different ways, but you have to bring that into the marriage and you always have to keep in mind that you have to appreciate your spouse and show that you appreciate them. uh, Because if you don't, then again, it breeds resentment and you get back to that self-perpetuating vicious cycle. I would like to hear a little bit of your experience when you first got married. You said, my wife treated me as a leader in the home long before I had any idea what it meant to lead or how to do it. What was that like for you? Because I think that, you know, a lot of women love to usur- usurp the God-given role of leadership that we understand within the context of Catholic Christian marriage. And for you to say, you know, this is something that your wife left you the space to figure out. How did that help? And how did it make it difficult, perhaps, as well? Yeah, I think from, from the very beginning, she kind of uh, made it clear that that's, you know, that's the role that she, she wanted me to play. And uh, she did give me the space to kind of figure that out. Because the, the thing is, when you, when you first get married, you know, you can read about it and think about it and talk about it. But uh, it's a different thing when you actually get married. And so no one is ever exactly ready in the sense that we think of it today. That's another problem where we kind of, we see the, the, the age of first marriage and having kids, it goes it gets later and later and later. And I think now for, uh, for men, it's like 30 or 31 almost uh, for first marriage. And for women, it's like 27, 28, 29, something like that. And because mm-hmm. people are just waiting around for this moment when they are allegedly going to be ready to dive into it. But then you figure out that no matter when you first get married, you have to, you know, you're, you're going to have that first day. It doesn't matter really how old you are. You're still going to be unprepared in so many ways for so much of what you're going to encounter. Um, which is why it's so important to have those vows to begin with that you both respect and honor and to have that, you know, that pledge of fealty and loyalty. And then to give each other space to figure out, what, you know, how to fulfill their end of the bargain and, uh, and their role. And my wife did that with me and kind of, uh, I always felt lifted up 
you know, in that way. And um, I always felt like she respected me and knew that I had the capacity to lead a family and then sort of expected me to play that role. And, um, and that's, you know, that, that was incredibly important. And you just mentioned, I think, something that's so important. That is expectations. I think often we have false expectations or expectations we enter into marriage just expecting that people will automatically break. But when people know that, that you don't actually expect something from them, well, it doesn't necessarily give them the opportunity to rise to the occasion. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you, and that's, and that's, you know, going into marriage with expectations, that's, that's part of it. Uh, I also think that it's really important for women, at least it certainly was for me. Um, I always felt like my wife was sort of cheering me on, you know, cheering for my success and was there supporting me. And uh, you think that that's automatic, you know, in a marriage, but it's not necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. But you want to feel like your spouse is, is kind of, it sounds like a cliche or corny or something, but it's true that, you want to feel like your spouse is your number one fan. And I think it's especially important for men to feel that way, um, to have that kind of support. And uh, I always felt like that as well. And that's, again, you know, crucially important. I'm someone who's very competitive when it comes to games and whatnot. And I don't think this is second nature. Sometimes it's even hard, let's say, if you're on the same sports team to work together on a team. So you can't even argue that you're just on the same team, but that you're you're working together, that you're, like you said, literally cheering the other person on. That's not second nature. And I think many spouses spend a long time uh, competing against one another. Yeah, there's, uh, well, I'll admit that my wife and I, we play board games all the time and we do get very competitive in board games. So that's <laughs> the one area where we're, we're trying to one up each other. But uh, there, there's a, there's a place. That's a thing. That's why it's maybe good maybe to play board games or some kind of, have some kind of game that you play with your spouse. So you have, you have a, you have an avenue for that competitiveness if you need to get that out of your system. Cause we're, we're both competitive people by nature, but then there are competitiveness in a marriage can be extremely destructive uh, outside of actual games and especially when you add kids and everything into the mix, um, even things like, you know, once you start having, a, a, we start having kids and there are responsibilities around the house. And that's when you start keeping score about, well, I did this and, uh, you know, I was up with the, the baby at night doing this and I did this around the house and you haven't done that. You have this like scoreboard in mind and you're constantly checking the scoreboard to see who's ahead. Um, it could be, it could be, you can lapse into that very easily in a marriage. Um, and that's, you know, another thing you have to be really careful about. Okay. Final thought here. I would like to hear your thoughts. So you're married within the Catholic church. You're Catholic, especially in dealing with a lot of these male female issues. Why would you argue in the midst of everything you see in the culture, the confusion about gender, male, female dynamics, why is getting married in the Catholic church so important? Well, because the Catholic Church, you know, first of all, the Catholic Church has, uh, <laughs> there's so many reasons it's hard to even boil it down. Um, one thing I will say is that the Catholic Church has a, a vision of marriage. Like, the Catholic Church knows what marriage is. Uh, you go through pre-Cana in, in, the, in the Catholic Church, and uh, they, they, you'll understand through the Church what the purpose of marriage is, why you're doing this. And I'm not sure that you can find that. In fact, I'm quite sure that you cannot find that anywhere else in the culture. I mean, marriage exists, especially from a secular standpoint. You know, you talk to secular people, they, they b- believe, quote unquote, in marriage. But if you ask them, well, what, why do it? I mean, what really is the point of actually getting married? And uh, they'll have a lot of, you know, broad kind of statements about, well, you love each other. Yeah, but why, why devote yourselves to each other in this thing that we, in this institution that we call marriage? Um, the Catholic Church has an answer for that, and uh, I, I'm not aware of anyone else that, that does have the answer. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. You can cap, Matt, catch Matt Walsh at The Daily Wire, and please check out What is a Woman, the book and documentary. We're posting links on social media as well as in the podcast notes. You can subscribe at relevantradio.com forward slash trending or wherever you catch your podcasts. We're there. We'll be right back taking a pro-life victory lap The great news that is here, the news ahead of us in the battle for life that is warring on with greater capabilities than ever before.
This hour is sponsored by Solidarity HealthShare, the first to offer comprehensive sharing for prescription medications. Check now to see how much you can save. Go to catholichealthshare.com. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. This weekend still kind of left me a little speechless and in a daze. We had the overturning of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade and the companion cases that led to the legalization of abortion in this nation, the so-called constitutional right to abortion that has been overturned. Praise God. I really do. If you have been a pro-life advocate on the sidewalks, involved in political work, forming young hearts and minds to the pro-life position, if you've been involved in this pro-life activism, thank you. Uh, Truly, thank you. And I want to talk a little later on about the joy of being involved in pro-life work. It's changed my life, and I know it's changed the lives of many others, and I hope it will inspire you to become more involved. We have an opportunity like never before to see changes made in our individual states. And no matter where you live, whether it be California and enshrining abortion into the state constitution, enshrining abortion into a destination travel place for abortion, or perhaps you live in a different state, a state such as Arkansas, where all the abortion clinics announce closing their doors to abortion services. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but truly being involved in pro-life work will change your life. That includes, yes, pro-life debates online, but I'll share with you a little bit about how it can change your life in other ways as well and the joy of being involved in pro-life work. Uh, I would really want to argue that this is a time of celebration as we also dig in. We have a battle ahead of us and I do want to touch on a little bit of what President Biden said, but before we do do go there, uh, Archbishop Alexander Sample of Portland, Oregon, made a comment that really stood out to me. He said, our goal has never been simply to make abortion illegal. Because the fact is, and just to repeat that, we haven't made abortion illegal. And what he said is, our goal is to make it unthinkable. And that is our Our goal, this is our work as a culture. Yes, we need to make abortion illegal in our individual states, but we need to make it unthinkable. Our culture truly does think, emote, to feel that abortion is a part of what makes women equally human today. That is a rewriting of an intellectual so-called idea that has been brainwashed into people today And that is the battle we are up against. We have been fighting an uphill battle for many years, and we still are. But the good news is is that with the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the decision power returns to the individual states, and many states are going to have a victory lap in just a moment, have been activating their pro-life laws, literally abortion appointments being canceled. We'll talk about that in a moment. Before we do go there, we need to talk a little bit about what President Joe Biden said in response to the announcement of Roe versus Wade being overturned. He said it was extreme and an attack on women. Why am I telling you this? Some of you may know, some of you may not, because there are still people today who argue that we should have voted for President Biden because he was Catholic, or they thought that, you know, he wasn't all bad. We could see what would happen. No, President Joe Biden is calling on Congress to codify the so-called right to abortion and to pass laws that would overrule the individual state laws outlawing abortion. In fact, in anticipation of overturning Roe versus Wade, President Biden actually had failed attempts where he worked and pushed Congress to enshrine a right to abortion into federal law, bypassing the very states that are fighting to preserve a right to life. He actually, even this Friday, directed the Department of Health and Human Services to make abortion-inducing pills, such as RU46 abortion pills, more readily available. And this absolutely ignores the health and safety regulations that 
have been placed in the past on the RU46 abortion pills. It's fascinating to me that the abortion movement talks about, well, if abortion is made illegal, women will have to resort to so-called back alley abortions. Well, actually, the pro-abortion movement, we know that over 54% of all abortions today are chemical so-called medical abortions. That is through the multi-pill process of RU-46, including mifepristone misoprostol, the abortion-inducing pills that first kill the baby and then cause the onset of labor. If you know anyone or maybe you are listening now and you've considered or have started the abortion pill process, please check out abortionpillreversal.com. We'll post a link on social media. Just follow me at Timmerie, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. But that's abortionpillreversal.com. It's very important that we are spreading the word about this process because many women start the abortion process and change their minds. And if done after taking the first abortion pill, um, we can actually save that baby through a dosage of progesterone administered by an international network of physicians who help in administering that. You just have to get connected with that network of doctors. I had the great honor of working with Dr. George Delgado, who was the creator and founder of the abortion reversal in San Diego. I helped with doing a lot of the marketing campaigns uh, when it first became um, a normal practice. And we saw and have seen now hundreds of babies who have survived this abortion pill reversal, stopping the process of abortion, perfectly healthy baby boys and baby girls, praise God. But you see, the a pro-abortion movement doesn't like this because number one, it's their easiest and number one choice for abortion because there's less overhead. It's not an in-house surgical procedure. They can send the people on the way, less work, less cleanup on their part, uh, less hands involved in the process of the actual abortion. Women deliver a dead baby at home. Now, this is actually interesting because the abortion movement, again, like I said, claims that the, pro, the pro-life movement is causing or going to cause back alley abortions. But in fact, through the deregulation of the abortion pill, both here in the United States as well as abroad during COVID, COVID was used as a means to try and create more access to abortion. And so they deregulated what's referred to as the REMS. The REMS are what helped to uphold some level of um, expectation and medical standard that actually required that a woman should see a physician to receive the abortion pill. Uh, She doesn't have to see a physician here in the United States. She doesn't even have to have an ultrasound. Why is that all dangerous? Because if a woman doesn't have an ultrasound before going through with the abortion pill, well, that baby could be stuck in her fallopian tube, leading to an ectopic tubal pregnancy. And an RU46 abortion pill may not necessarily actually abort that baby and that baby still continues to grow. She thinks that she's already had an abortion, but if that fallopian tube bursts, it will kill baby and mom. I mean, these are things that the abortion movement is being incredibly irresponsible with, not to mention the fact that the abortion pill really shouldn't be taken after eight weeks, but we see the abortion pill giving being given up to 10, 12, and 16 weeks of gestation. I have seen and worked with women who have been given the pill at 16 weeks gestation. That's twice the age that is actually recommended for when that RU-486 abortion pill should be given. This is damaging to both mother, deadly to baby, and can be deadly to the mother as well. And so what's interesting is when President Biden, our so-called Catholic president, is directing the Department of Health and Human Services to make this abortion inducing set of pills more readily available, he is ignoring the health and safety of millions of Americans, the mothers and the babies. That is not pro-woman. That is damaging and harmful for a woman's body. Biden's Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday released a statement vowing, vowing to work against the Supreme Court ruling, saying this, the Justice Department strongly disagrees with the court's decision. Okay, the highest court in our land just made this decision, and it's just saying that abortion isn't constitutional, 
constitutional. So is the Justice Department suddenly the expert on constitutional law? The Department of Justice then goes on to say they strongly support efforts by Congress to codify America's reproductive rights, which it retains the authority to do. And it goes on to say that other legislative efforts to ensure access to comprehensive reproductive services and use every tool at our disposal to protect reproductive freedoms. So the Department of Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services are all activating under the guidance of so-called Catholic President Joe Biden. We have work to do ahead of us. They are fighting and they are fighting viscerally to push the pro-abortion agenda. In fact, abortion dollars are up. The pro-abortion movement is receiving a massive number of funds from major organizations, including Comcast, Disney, Netflix, Paramount, and Warner Brothers in Discovery. Now, Netflix has gone so far to offer $10,000 for a woman to travel wherever she needs to and to cover her expenses and her trip so that she can have an abortion. This is how disgusting the mindset within corporate America is because they know they save more money if they just spend $10,000 to have a woman kill her child instead of going on anything from maternity leave to leaving that position and the work that goes with onboarding and interviewing new candidates and replacing that. So it's much cheaper to them to pay for a woman, to pay $10,000 for a woman to have an abortion. That treats a woman like a machine. It destroys her motherhood. It destroys her child. It leaves a woman post-abortive, a woman, a mother without a child. And so we have a lot of work to do. And I want to invite you to do something today, to support your pro-life organizations contact them. Ask them what they need. Maybe you're inspired to contact your crisis pregnancy centers. Maybe a pro-life action league that's involved in legislation. I'm encouraging everyone as the pro-abortion movement is raising funds like never before today to fight in favor of abortion we need to celebrate this great victory of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That there's no constitutional right to abortion and that we now have the ability in our individual states to pass and uphold pro-life laws and go after pro-abortion laws or any exceptions that allow for abortion. So I want to encourage you, maybe I think everyone can donate $10 to a pro-life organization. I think that's something that we're all capable of doing. Maybe you're capable of doing more, but we need to support our pro-life organizations as the pro-abortion movement is stepping forward to push the abortion agenda. But they haven't won. They are not winning. The victory is real for the pro-life movement, for women and babies. In fact, 13 states have nearly completely outlawed abortion, or they do have some um, exceptions. Or sorry, I, I misspoke. There are 13 states that uh, pretty much immediately on Friday or within the next 30 days have activated what are known as trigger laws uh, with pro-life laws that, that are passed. Arkansas, Idaho, Kentucky, Louisiana, Missouri, Mississippi, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. This is fantastic news. Sure, places like Louisiana and others such as Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, we have elected officials and high-ranking individuals saying that they will not uphold these pro-life laws. Listen, this isn't going to be worked out overnight. People, even in high authority that have a responsibility to uphold the law, are ro roaming free, making their own decisions, and we have to hold them accountable don't give up. But look at the good news. I was reading a BBC article earlier this morning. They've actually been in one of the Arkansas abortion clinics for a few weeks now with the anticipation of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And they were there when the clinic when a clinic staff in Arkansas heard the news that abortion was overturned. And the Arkansas clinic staff and that abortion clinic quickly kicked out the BBC team because they wanted time to mourn together. But guess what they had to do? They had to shut the door to abortion services, so-called services. They had to immediately turn women away from their abortion appointments that day. The 
Arkansas legislator uh, and, and governors have commented and pushed through the legislature $1 million to be distributed across the state to the various uh, pregnancy resource centers in the state of Arkansas. Abortion is banned in all cases in the state of Arkansas, except to save the life of the mother. Now, there is no reason for an abortion to save the life of the mother. We're actually going to talk about why abortion is not a life-saving form of so-called medical intervention or care for women. We'll talk about that tomorrow here on Trending. But this is the great news. The abortion clinics in Arkansas are closed for abortions. They are no longer performing abortions. Missouri has a ban on abortion at the detection of a heartbeat at eight weeks in the state of Missouri. That went into effect immediately. Utah Planned Parenthood stopped abortions in the state the same day on Friday that the decision was handed down, and they immediately, yes, did file a lawsuit against this law, but here's the reality. Abortion is banned in the state of Utah uh, after eight weeks, except in very rare cases such as, and they had, they do push those rare cases, uh, documentation for rape and incest and the severely uh, diagnosed disability of a child. But I do find it interesting because although they have exceptions for abortion in the state of Utah, Utah also passed a law a couple years ago called the Down Syndrome Non-Discrimination Abortion Act, which bans killing babies with Down syndrome and abortion. So while they don't allow for babies to be aborted now, if the baby has a Down syndrome diagnosis, because that is eugenics, uh, that's selective abortion, well, they still at the same time do have an exception uh, for babies that are disabled. So Utah is going to have to work out some of their laws that they pass that somewhat contradict one another. But the reality is, is that none of these laws, none of them would be in effect today were it not for the overturning of Roe versus Wade on Friday. This is the good news. I want you to understand how profound this is. Abortion clinics across this nation are ending access to abortion. Ending access to abortion. Not just one life being saved. Not just two. We're talking about hundreds to thousands. This is an incredible, incredible day to celebrate the lives of these babies and their mothers in a time for you and I to pray for them. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Do you like to hear the latest and greatest news in the battle for life? Are you still celebrating and praising God and Thanksgiving for the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the decision over abortion returned to the states in which we see many of our states already enacting and triggering pro-life laws that are going into effect? We're going to talk about why abortion is never medically necessary and the next steps in our states and how we can get involved. Join me Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.